vengeance. I am the knight. Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what's going on, my friend? I am constipated with anger, Matt. Uh, Once again, I am late to the show because of my love of bar trivia and i'm i'm so sorry and i appreciate your good nature and uh spoiler our guest good nature and uh, i swear to god our pub runs rotate it's only about once every two months that uh, it lines up where we run from a pub that has trivia on wednesday nights next time this happens i'm just gonna be like uh, Matt, we're going to have to record like an hour later because I'm a fucking moron and I can't say to everybody else playing, hey, I got other plans tonight and uh, and not play trivia. But in my pitiful defense, I did skip out before the final round, but not before a round that was devoted exclusively to Greek mythology. That should have been my fucking sign right there to get up and fucking leave. Fuck Greek mythology. I hate it. Uh, I missed probably all of those questions and see, I, I'm grumpy about the game. I'm grumpy about being late and just fuck everything, Matt. Fuck everything. Uh, but, but, but fortunately we have a good show. We have a good night. We have a good guest. Because <sighs> welcome back to the show. Good friend and Patreon backer, Josh wheel. Josh, how are you tonight? My friend? Thank you so much. So happy to be here. Glad to have you. And we are here. And Josh is bringing with him the Emerald Archer. Because tonight, three team-ups between Batman and Green Arrow of one type or another. A Green Arrow. A Green Arrow. But we're, we're, we're starting out with a fairly traditional Green Arrow, as one would expect, with It Takes Two Wings to Fly. This is Detective Comics Volume 1, number 559. Uh, writer is Doug Mensch. Pencils by Gene Colan. Inks by Bob Smith. Colors by Adrian Roy. Letters by John Workman and editor is Len Wein. Cover date is February of 1986. Green Arrow and Black Canary arrive in Gotham City to shadow a young man who is looking to prove a corporate raider is responsible for the death of his father and others. But when Batman gets involved, will the hero's differing opinions do more harm than good? I want to toss this out because we're going to talk a lot about Green Arrow tonight. Uh, and we're going to talk a lot about Batman, but we, we do that every week. This last line, or one of the last lines of dialogue from Black Canary in this issue, I feel like it's right. I think it's right, but I can't tell what the hell it's supposed to mean. And and I I think it might just kind of guide our discussion tonight. So Canary says this, last page of the issue, Green Arrow is only pretending to be what Batman really is. And Batman is actually closer to what Green Arrow pretends to be. Gentlemen, discuss i i'm jumping in first because i have the green arrow tattoo so (laughs) that Um, is indeed a green arrow tattoo oh that's a big one that's a big one green arrow so green arrow is a character that has meant something to me a lot as as someone who sobriety being a part of my journey in early life getting clean and sober and staying sober since 2006 hell um, yeah i kind of came into I was mentioning to um, Matt in the green room that, you know, after college, I 
you know, I had about a 10 year gap in comics that, you know, I started filling up with lots of stuff from, you know, back issues and bargain bins. And, you know, I had 10 years that I could dig through and, and catch up on. And I really got into Green Arrow. And one of the reasons why Green Arrow has always kind of stuck to me a little different than Batman is because Batman's driven for justice. He's driven to protect people from being hurt the way he was. Batman is built by trauma. Green Arrow is based on atonement. Green Arrow did all of his shit to himself. Green Arrow makes shitty decisions. He makes bad choices, even though he means well and wants to help people. And then he's got to atone even more because every three wins, he has a loss and he's got to keep getting better. He's not perfect. And so he he talks a big game and he, and he fights hard, but then, you know, he cheats on Dinah or then he abandons Roy when Roy's on drugs or then he, you know fucking loses it and kills Prometheus or, you know, he abandons has, Connor as abandons a child. Connor. He has a long history of fucking up and giving himself more things to atone for and trying to just truly be of, of maximum service, which is, you know, something that talks about in the big book about Alcoholics Anonymous in a way that I, I could really resemble. Like he's a normal guy looking at the largest fucking scales. And even though he's completely out of his league, just trying to fucking make up for his own shit. And so he talks a bigger game. And so, yeah, I, I had to, both times I've read this and I did, I love 559 even more the second time, which was delightful. I was worried it wouldn't be as good the second or as, as humorous the second time. I enjoyed the shit out of this book. The politics side of me, the, the green arrow lover in me. I, I, I love this so much, this issue. Um, I'm super excited to hear your guys' take on it. But yeah, Green Arrow pretending to be what Batman really is because Batman lives this. Batman isn't trying to be anything. This is all he can fucking be. Green Arrow is pushing himself to be more than he can be for atonement. And, you know, Bruce pretends to be hard as fuck and not caring, but inside he is the bleeding heart softy that Green Arrow screams about being all the time. So it, it works for me. I had to think about it a little too, but it, it works. We see it with Bruce way more than a non-regular Batman reader would give him credit for. But, I mean, you see at the end of this issue, the, the chemical plant is going to get, will be obviously need to be shut down. But Bruce says to Oliver, it's like, oh, yeah, I think Wayne Industries will buy it. They might even have to hire more people. Or in the recent issue, we did part of the Morrison run where there's the the sex worker and batman's like you know you need to get off the street and she's like i, I can barely you know read like well can you answer a phone here's a card go to wayne tech they'll give you a job answering phones my favorite little bit from batman the animated series with harley quinn i had a bad day too once or the episode of justice league Endgame, where there's this scene with Batman and Ace of the Royal Flush Gang from that story where she's this powerful psychic whose powers are killing her and there's no way she's about to die. So this teenage girl, Bruce just sits on a swing set next to her and is with her when she passes. For all of that darkness, for all of that bluster and anger, Bruce has a real soft center that he would never admit to that Oliver's I'm going to go out there and I'm going to, you know, help the little guy. And I'm going to be, it's like, yeah, but in the long run, Ollie, you often forget because you have your own shit going on. 
and then afterwards he's gonna have sex with black lightning's daughter yeah like, like he'll do the good thing and then he'll do the bad thing oh it's, Oliver. but that's one of the things like i've loved like i love judd winnick's run on green arrow because it is simultaneously joyful and infuriating because he does that like three steps forward one steps back where every time like he's building up and you're like yes he's finally getting the family together he's finally pledging to it and then you're like god damn it and knowing the reveal at the end of the Meltzer run that he knew Connor was his son all along reframes all of the earlier Connor stories where it's like where he's you know putting on this shocked look when Connor tells him he's his son it's like wait so you coward Oliver oh Ollie but the the comic itself we should probably swing to the comic itself here Doug Mensch writes Batman in this story in the same way that Hawkman is usually written. Bruce is way more of the arch conservative in this story than he usually is portrayed as. He lets Ollie call him a bat fascist and a Reaganite multiple times. The 80s politics in this book, and I think Black Canary calls them on it at one point or another. She even makes some comment about Stopping with the political name dropping. To be fair, fuck Ronald Reagan. <laughs> this week, after having read the last issue of Fortress, of Witta's Fortress last week, I found it funny, the, the idea that here we have Bruce voting Republican and then, um, you know, kind of canonically being a voting Republican, which at some point historically can make sense. Like you can sell me that, Bruce would want a smaller federal government and wider margins for the private, you know, believing that like the people will do better than the government could because he's the fucking people who's going to make sure he does better than the government could and wants broader margins to operate in. Like you could sell me on that. But then also in a like Lex Luthor slash Trump presidency world that he's like, yeah, I didn't fucking vote Republican last time. Yeah. He's not going to vote for a police state. I'm never 100% comfortable with a Batman who supports a police state. That's not, no, he's an extra legal vigilante for a reason. And, and this too is an artifact of a time when the Republican Party had actual positions, right? George Schultz wasn't a name that was immediately recognizable to me. So, you know, I, I read the man's Wikipedia article. He served in various administrations. He was one of the first guys who came up with a carbon tax as a way to uh, regulate industry. And now it's, you know, one of the most evil liberal things possibly imaginable. This guy served in like three different Republican administrations. So uh, talk about all the politics you want in here. Uh, and again, fuck Ronald Reagan. But this is from a very different point in American political history. And I do want to circle back something that I have mentioned. I think every time we've mentioned Reagan... The man named names. Fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. Look, this is 1986. This comic has aged very well. Lines like, ain't no joke sicker than the criminal justice system are, are fucking evergreen. Absolutely. And now, what, did you, what did you think of uh, Ollie's voice in some of those lines? It didn't quite ring true to me, but I am not the Green Arrow expert that you appear to be, Josh. It was a lot closer to the Denny O'Neill um, 70s stuff. There's a little less of it in the Mike Grell 80s stuff. And then a lot of that kind of goes away. 
but yeah, there's a lot of that in the, if you read the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, and then the Denny O'Neill, Mike Rell stuff from the late seventies and early eighties, they were conservative liberal kind of counterpoint. How, cause how's a fucking cop? Like how was your conservative character and Ollie was the bleeding heart liberal. And the fantastic fucking thing about it is that how now would be read as, as a liberal <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, that's why Hawkman is the one who comes into my head, because that's the character they often have Ollie butting heads with, because yeah. this guy, is, he's a space cop currently, and in his previous lives was a fucking pharaoh. This guy is hardcore. This is the system. This is the way it works. Yeah, there, there's been some Justice League ones where Ollie loses his mind and calls him a fascist. But the, the kind of like half jive talk bit of you know that that feels a little aged yeah that's i mean it's not the first time i've read it like that the, the bit of dialogue that threw me for a minute and i realized what it was when we got a little later but when dinah is talking about curtis sample the young man who they're trying to protect because his father was basically poisoned by this chemical company that he worked for and now sample is trying to prove it because he can't get any evidence in the systems against him. Dinah uses the phrase that he's stealing from the company to quote, fund a hit on a murderer. And for a second, in my head, hit means, you know, you're hiring a hitman. And I understood later it's it's a PR hit, but I was like, wait, why are they oh. supporting this guy hiring somebody to kill this dude? It took me a couple of pages like, oh, they, okay. But again, that parlance threw me for a second. I was like, why is Bruce even going along with this? Because Hitman, not Bruce's thing. Yeah, I, I had that too. Um, the plot gets a little overly complicated, but I mean, it's really just a hodgepodge of the pieces you need to, you know, hit both Bruce and Ollie's sore spots and just let them argue politics for 20 pages. Which, and, and again, like I said, I was surprised by this the first time I read it. So the first time I picked this up, because, you know, the cover has... Batman, Catwoman, Green Hour, Black Canary. I had seen this one day in a back issue. I'm like, I don't even care. I don't know how much that is. Just fucking give me that one. I was surprised. Like, I was not expecting just, like, political tearing at each other. Like, Batman being called a fucking fascist in his own book. So, coming into it the second time, I'm like, okay. Like, without the shock, is it going to be as good? But knowing all that was coming, I was still just as amused and enjoyed page after page of it this second read. And Canary and Selena just both of them rolling their eyes that these two cannot stop. That every page, like the minute one of them says something, the other one is immediately arguing. Bruce could say that the sky is blue. And well, granted, in Gotham, it's probably red. Uh, <laughs> Bruce could say the sky is red. And Oliver would say it was purple at this point just because they're being contrary. There's a great, uh, I don't know, it's not a great issue. There, there's an issue of the Judd Winnick run where, um, for Green Arrow, where they're kind of like this. They get on each other's nerves. Ollie's trying to go and buy back some of his like Silver Age memorabilia and goofy shit. And Bruce keeps outbidding him for it just to fucking piss him off. There's a great antagonistic kind of play to it that, you know, I, I've seen come up in a couple ones because, yeah, like there, there, there's just something about them that, you know, they, they play off of each other or work each other up in a very believable way. They play with that a lot on uh, the Brave and the Bold cartoon. The two of them are constantly 
just competing. It's a friendly rivalry, but it is absolutely Oliver basically feeling kind of inadequate because Batman's Batman and everybody just looks at him as a second rate Batman. Well, I was going to say, and we're going to get to in the uh, next story we talk about when we talk about the, the the Connor story, you know, the years of that make the Bruce Connor interactions in the late 90s, early 2000s that kind of hit, you know, you a little more in the feels as a result of it, too. I have this feeling if Oliver wasn't being so remarkably petulant, Bruce would have been way more of a you know, normal Batman coming down hard on this industrialist that's Kempson who's behind this whole thing. But because Oliver has got his back up and keeps putting up a fight and pushing, Bruce is digging in his heels. I mean, there's one point where you know they catch this PI that Kempson hired and Bruce's like, okay, we've got to bring him in. And Oliver's like, what? You can't bring him in. He'll be out right away, blah, blah, blah. And Bruce's like, no, you've got to do it. It's like, wait, this is Batman. He would normally have no issue just like keeping him somewhere out of the way for 48 hours before turning him over to Gordon. But it feels like he's doing this because Oliver is so dead set against it that Bruce is just picking a fight because Oliver is being a dick and Bruce is being just as much of a dick. And Selena and Diana are just like, really? Yeah, there's... It, it, it hits all of the great kind of character interactions. You know, these two bringing the worst out of each other. Um, and it's just super enjoyable, especially as someone who is as into both politics and Batman comics and Green Arrow as I am. This is this was one that had to be on my my list for us to talk about eventually. I wish we would still get stories like this now. These little one-off things that kind of come at a character from a different angle. I miss the this from the the 80s and 90s and before, frankly. But we don't get a lot of this in the age of serialized storytelling. Uh, everything has to be a 17-part arc. Um, and it, it uh, all has to be action. And um, yeah, it's, it's the way, uh, way of the world now, Matt. You know that. I do. Like, can you imagine if they did an issue like this this time where... You know, like Ollie goes to the Justice League Watchtower and Bruce has a mega hat on and they just like flip out. Like the internet would break. Like the internet could not handle like a a modern version of this. I, I, I think he's got some good ideas of the government. <laughs> no, Bruce Wayne, no. Because again, it's not like Bruce voted for Luthor. Not that... Uh... That is is somewhat of a false equivalency just because Luthor, you know, has two brain cells he can rub together. But but still. Um, it's not fair to Lex Luthor to compare him to Donald Trump. Exactly. Absolutely not. Exactly. But there is, Bruce's heart is in this, especially when, I mean, Dinah points out, and this is a point where Dinah and Oliver don't know Bruce's identity, but Dinah says something about, orphaned sons and it's like oh there we go you just hit bruce's sore spot there he's gonna help this kid now because you know exactly where to go even if you didn't know who he was under the mask and it is a point where in this directly before the crisis right at the end of pre-crisis continuity selena clearly knows bruce's secret 
which she forgets. And then we go into the crisis and she doesn't learn it again for nearly 20 years, about 20, a little less because she learns it again in hush. And so this is 86 and hush was. Oh, four Oh five, somewhere around there. So this is a point where Selena was, as we, I think talked about last week in Batman 400, where this is only a few months before that, a point where Selena was, as she is now, more of a supporting character than an antagonist. Do we have any other... Last last thing, because I feel like we've covered all the story beats. The art, I, I do like the art on this. I thought this had um, really great paneling. Um, I love some of the designs. There's, you know, as you go back and look through it, there's some panels that are kind of like shaped and cut into the bat silhouette around. It's really quality art like solid amount of detail and backgrounds especially for this time period like marvel wouldn't start having fucking backgrounds behind characters for like another 15 years um and the the only thing that makes the art feel a little different is because like some of the clothes and outfits are dated it has that the the clothing and the outfits make it feel a little off but it's it's a really pretty book like the the art is really solid and there's some good close-ups and facial expressions in here very well done, especially for 86. Gene Colan is is a great, I mean, the, his runs on the Bat books, but he did Daredevil. And I mean, if you want great Gene Colan, he did all 70 issues or close to it of Marvel's Tomb of Dracula, which is tremendous stuff. And was reprinted when Marvel did the, the big phone book essentials in black and white. Colan is one of those artists whose stuff when represented in black and white might actually look better because of all the work he does with shade and shadow. A lot of those artists, when they're reprinted in those, those phone books, it's not too flattering because of the time, but Colin works real well in black and white. With that being the case and that final bit of discussion, it's time to put Detective Comics number 559 on the big board. Being that we are now at episode 51, currently we have 150 stories on the big board. Number one is, uh, as has been since episode one, Batman Year One. Down at number 30 is No Law and a New Order, first arc of No Man's Land. At number 60 is Homewreckers, Life on Mars from Batman, The Brave and the Bold, number 20. Coming in at number 69, it's Batman Universe. Down at 90 is I Am Batman Begins, the first arc of I Am Batman. At 120 is A Grim Knight in Gotham, the Batman Who Laughs Grim Knight one-shot. And hey, guess what? At 150, it's still White Knight. Boo! So starting just off in general... I think we are, we're, we're in the top half. I think this is an interesting story that does a lot of character work with Batman and Green Arrow. Okay, how about it's more or less the same time period. Uh, Detective Comics 574, my beginning and my probable end at number 53. How do you feel about it there? I would still rank that one above i'm a big fan of that issue it's leslie tompkins yeah leslie tompkins which is always a you you softy jason's dying right yeah that does a lot of work it, it is leslie but it also does a lot of work showing bruce 
his evolution as a person from childhood through his travels. It's less the origin of Batman and more about what he is as a person and is the issue that sort of establishes the Leslie Tompkins that we know now. Before that, she was the little old lady social worker. This is the one that gives us doctor, pacifist, but still hard-ass Leslie Tompkins. And I think that's an important character for the Batman mythos moving forward. About a couple spots down comparing it to um, Half and Evil, which another story that may have been unintentionally funny, um, I'm not sure, but has a lot of humor in some of the Two-Face silliness. Smash and grab, as always. I would say it's better than that. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're some that means it's somewhere between 53 and 58. So smack in the middle there at 55 is where were you the night Batman was killed? That's nowhere near as an intellectual story, but there is so much fun in those those four issues. That is just wacky. I, I think it's better than Nightmares below that, that long Halloween holidays uh the long halloween special yeah so that so that puts us between 53 and 56 so we got 54 is nightfall part two and 55 is where you where were you the night batman was killed i mean it doesn't have as many pages but it's definitely more fun than nightfall part two that is true okay i i think we put it then in between i think that it, it goes right after my beginning and my probable end and before nightfall part two the new number 54. Hey, one, one of the issues I picked didn't wind up in the bottom 10. Hey! <laughs> the Knights Young. Up next is The Brotherhood of the Fist. This is Green Arrow, Volume 2, numbers 134 and 135. Detective Comics, Volume 1, number 723. Robin, Volume 2, number 55 and Nightwing Volume 2, number 23. The writer is Chuck Dixon, with pencils by Doug Braithwaite, Alex Maliv, William Rosado, and Scott McDaniel. Inks by Robin Riggs, Bill Reinhold, Stan Woke, and Carl Story. Colors by Lee Lawfridge, Jameson, Gloria Vasquez, Adrian Roy, and Roberta Tuiz. Letters by John Costanza and Tim Harkins, and edited by Darren Vincenzo, Scott Peterson, Jordan B. Gorfinkel, and Denny O'Neill. The cover dates are July and August of 1998. The Brotherhood of the Monkey's Fist, a martial arts cult dedicated to being the greatest martial artists in the world, has been shamed by the defeat of one of their greatest members at the hands of Connor Hawk, the new Green Arrow. And so they set out to prove that they are the best by taking out the best martial artists in the DC universe. And near the top of the list, Batman and his family problematic creator watch chuck dixon yep beat me to it chuck dixon is an arch conservative who has expressed admiration for various right-wing politicians most notably donald trump big old penis yeah that chuck dixon but he was interesting so many fucking books at this point like this isn't even his whole line like he was i'm pretty sure he had taken over catwoman from joe duffy at this point he had like Chuck Dixon was writing like, birds after. of 
DC line. Yeah, Birds of Prey was I, not quite an ongoing yet, but was a series of miniseries and one shots by at this point. And so he was doing those. Yeah, we were. I have the dates on that because there's a, a little appearance. We were in between when he did the first one shot in 96. Then he was doing showcase issues with them. And six months after this, in January of 99, Birds of Prey gets its first ongoing. Yeah. So, so we were right in between that with Dinah, um Barb stuff. What's fascinating to me is that for such a conservative guy, Connor Hawk is the biggest dove, the most gentle character you can imagine. And even in a lot of his Batman stuff, while Batman is anti-gun and things that we know Dixon is, there is some of Dixon's politics that work its way in there. And you can get some of that with Connor's supporting cast, most notably Eddie Fires. Eddie Fires. Oh, yeah. Eddie Fires is Dixon's writer stand-in for himself. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't know that he could have written the Zen Buddhist like comic that Green Arrow was for 40 issues without having Eddie Fires in there. Yeah. But Connor himself is very non-Dixonian. This story is basically your martial arts movie. This is very cinematic, very inspired by your Bruce Lee, your Hong Kong cinema with, you know, hey, you've got martial artists and we're spending five issues in what is basically a tournament, even if there isn't the formal structure of the tournament. It's hella fun. This story is just wall-to-wall crazy action and a big tour of the martial arts universe that DC had built at this point in its history. Speaking of Connor Hawk in big giant martial arts tournaments, let's take a moment to say how happy I am that Josh Williamson finally brought Connor Hawk back for us. It's a little weird that he's in Damien's peer group now and not Wally and Kyle's, but like, I just look, man, it's been so long. I'll take what I can get. Absolutely. I was overjoyed when we saw Connor back in that book. And as you said, you know, here he's hanging out with Tim. He had that whole new latter day hard traveling heroes with Kyle in the crossover between their books and that one uh, three of a kind that is a crossover between Green Arrow, Green Lantern and Flash. It does seem a little odd that he's again now palling around with, you know, a 13 year old. But hey, I'll, I'll take what Connor Hawk I can get. You have a contemplative look on your face will well i mean i was just trying to rank the various monkeys here and (laughs) i I would have to say that i i don't know if it was uh in the book necessarily but gold monkey would probably have to be the very lowest right because gold gold is soft it's expensive and maybe you could use it in like electronics but otherwise it has no it has no purpose it is flashy and obvious is because I guess what Will is hinting at for those who haven't read it is that the Brotherhood of the Monkey's Fist, they're ranked in tiers of different elements, different materials. And the weaker the material, the more of them there are. So we have the low tiers of things like Iron Monkeys, but then you get up to the top and you get things like Silver Monkey and Bamboo Monkey 
And then the the tippy top of them all, the paper monkey, who is we'll talk about paper monkey because it, it makes perfect sense when you get to that point. But it's like, oh, okay. But it's this just kooky martial arts cult, and Connor Hawk beats Silver Monkey, who is one of their, you know, top guys. And so they've been shamed. So they send out all the monkeys to fight all of the different martial arts in the DC universe. And, you know, Will, you said, you know, in the previous story, you can't have anything that isn't 17 parts long. This is five issues. And this was 1998. Today, this would have been a seven part tentpole miniseries with a million tie-ins like what they did with Dixon's uh, Last Laugh story, the Joker crossover that was supposed to be just between Nightwing, Birds of Prey, and Robin, the three books he was writing at the time. And then DC's like, no, no, we need to put this in everything. And so it became this overblown mess. We will get to Last Laugh someday and oh boy. So the concept of this I found interesting and, and I can remember even like reading this when it first came out um, and even being younger, just recognizing that the Bat titles have way too many fucking characters that are considered the greatest fighter in the world. And that's before you even spread out into the greater DC universe with the even more greatest fighters in the world. And so, you know, I I do kind of like the way, like, this felt like, okay, how are we going to fit Connor in here? Like, okay, like, we've got to like you're adding him to your bat chat ranking list. Like we've got to figure out he's going to be better than this person, but below this one, like this was their way of kind of like working him into a certain level. And As we're still pre Like the paper monkey they bring in. And we're still pre Cassandra. So we be the next, you know, we're a year away from the next greatest fighter in the world. Yep. Because I guess we'll, we'll say it right now. Paper monkey is lady Shiva. Cause it's like, of course, if you're going to have any greatest martial artist in the DC universe, like, well, the, the standard upon which everyone competes is Shiva, because that's her whole thing. I'm the greatest fighter out there, and I'm going to prove it by killing everybody who gets in my way. It, it's simple, elegant. Shiva was one of those characters that was not heavily involved in the DC universe. I mean, she was introduced in the Richard Dragon series that O'Neill wrote back in the 70s and then appeared in the Denny O'Neill question which while a DC universe book was a mature readers book. So was not heavily involved in the main intricacies of the DC universe. And then she pops up in death in the family in that weird moment, but it's Dixon who really brings her into the fold of the DC universe in that first Tim Drake miniseries. And from there she becomes a much more central figure in the DC universe. Yeah, I had to go back and look through and remember all of the spots where she popped up in Robin and even like kind of touch back on the issues. I had completely forgotten about the ones 50 to 52 where he gets some like super speed and accidentally kills Shiva and brings her back. And because that was only a couple issues before this, actually. I don't think I've reread that one since it first came out. And so, you know, there was, you know, a lot of um, biodegradable memories, you know, lost in time there. You know, looking through over that period, the majority of her appearances are in Robin stuff post the the Nightfall, Night's Quest. Because she, I mean, she, as I said, she comes in in that first Dixon miniseries. And then she, you know, uses Tim as, quote unquote, her weapon to take out Kingsnake to prove that she's better than him. 
and then keeps up showing up as sort of this recurring weird not quite nemesis to tim but not quite ally either and i mean eventually she'll become sort of central to black canary's journey which is fascinating here because they don't even cross paths here but we i mean we get full appearances from you know batman robin nightwing connor canary bronze tiger we don't see richard dragon we only see one cameo by the question was sin also lady shiva's daughter I don't, I don't believe so. Ah, oh, now there's a name you I haven't heard. Crossing paths and all that stuff again. Now I'm trying to, maybe not. Because we already have Cassandra. That would have been too much. Yeah. yeah. Not that they've never done too, not that they've never repeated stories and done too much. But one thing that did get me here when it comes to problematic creator stuff and Dixon is that the Brotherhood of the Monkey's Fist Bronze Tiger is talking about the the Brotherhood and he's like, they worship this monkey deity and he goes and tells this story, which is very loosely based on the story of the the Monkey King, Sun Wukong from Chinese folklore. But this version, like, I mean, up to and including bits about the Buddha defeating him and dropping a mountain on him. But here he's addressed as an evil god the story of the monkey king is a story of one of redemption the monkey king has to go on the journey of the west and it's a made me a little uncomfortable to be using something that is currently culturally relevant to a country to a people and altering it in such a way while you know it's it's like for want of a lack of a better analogy using Jesus Christ in a story. I would bet a substantial amount of money that Chuck Dixon sees nothing wrong with wearing other cultures clothing as Halloween costumes. So, I mean, like we're, we're talking about a different, different type of product, not to justify it, but just like, I completely agree with you there. I'm just, I, I felt like I needed to call that out because it struck me as not a good look we'll get to more of not a good look in the next story but uh, this is nowhere near the worst broad brush stereotypes of asians that you know we'll see in even just batman ninja comics i mean there's been so many yeah oh i looked up sin was being trained to be the next lady shiva that was the connection when when black canary adopted her and took her out of that life another lost character from that bird her and uh, misfit from that birds of prey run two characters that just disappeared after jt Krull set the entire green arrow family on fucking fire and i will never forgive him for it yeah that was that was not a good era for for green arrow oh i will say this is generally speaking a really good looking crossover Braithwaite, Rosado, very, very early Alex Maliv. It's really nice looking. And all of these guys know, and McDaniel, know how to handle a fight scene, which is hugely important for a comic that is basically a five-issue fight scene. There's a lot of great motion and choreography in the fight scenes. Um, I mean, none more than the, the final Connor Shiva fight. They do a great job in 
I mean, sequential still panels to kind of give you the feel of the rhythm and movement between these two. Like you can tell that they are moving fast and countering each other rapidly, even though we're only getting, you know, so many kind of still shots in between. It's very, very cinematic um, and really enjoyable. I'll jump in and say McDaniel's work in Nightwing just kind of stuck out to me as being a little too different than the other four. I, I think as a standalone book, it, w- it would be just fine. But visually, it was just so much of a different vibe that it kind of it kind of took me out of the story a little bit. I can agree with you on that. I mean, he was the ongoing artist on Nightwing at the time. So it. it and, and it, it gave Nightwing a different feel at the time, it, um, which was great. But yeah, I have that in my notes as well, that that one is not bad, but sticks out. Uh, Braithwaite was the regular artist on Green Arrow at the time. I do not believe Rosado was the regular artist on Robin. And Maliv was a, definitely a fill-in artist on Tech. So it seems like the two, for the other two books, they got artists to fit with Braithwaite's style, but... McDaniel just sort of kept plugging along in his book. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do. Uh, y'all can like it or not. I appreciate that. <laughs> there's also a little knock, and I don't know. This is probably on the letterer, but in part three, there's a really nice Tim and Connor scene, but it gets kind of messed up because the dialogues are attributed in one of the panels to the wrong characters. Yes, which. Exactly. Each time I've read this pulls me out because I'm like, wait, who? What? Oh, it's just, it's the wrong. Mm-hmm. I have that in my notes as well because it's Tim is basically giving Connor a really nice compliment from Bruce, but it looks like Connor is giving that compliment to Tim, which makes no sense. Mm-hmm. And then especially when you yeah, get to the next like, panel. Wait, Batman thinks Tim is the most natural, like amazingly natural martial artist he's ever seen. What? Yeah, I was like, it took me a second. I was like, wait, this got to be. And it's like, yeah, yep, no, no, that's backwards. Because listen, I love Tim Drake more than is probably healthy, but many things we know about Tim, top notch martial artist in those echelons. Mm-mm. Tim could, you know, beat most normal folk in a fight, sure. But when it comes to these like tournament level fights, it's not Tim's scene. Put him in a detective competition. He'll beat everybody, but no. no. Batman loves that Tim has the tactical mind of all of them. You know, the closest to his, but not the natural martial arts skills. No. Also, this is a point. Deathstroke shows up towards the middle of this. No, in fucking horrible purple suit. Oh, it's, this is the period where Deathstroke was. And, and Will, I believe I'm using this term properly. Deathstroke was a jobber at this point. We're in between his ongoing and when he sort of gets brought back to prominence in the Titans book from Devin Grayson. So here Deathstroke basically just shows up regularly to get beaten up by people to show that they're tough. Uh, Yes, that would make him a jobber. Nicely done, Matt. Thank you. Yeah, because Deathstroke's ongoing ended in 96. And the Titans ongoing is 2000, 2001. So yeah. There's some bad transitive property in here of Deathstroke being equal to Eddie Fires with all the times we've seen Deathstroke and Batman fighting to standstills. That really does not, does not work. 
Right. And it's especially because you're not factoring Deathstroke in as a martial artist here. He's just kind of brought in as a gun guy. And it's like, but wait, Deathstroke fights, as you said, he fights Batman. Eddie Fires would not be, Eddie Fires, as Mike Grell created him and wrote him, would not be effective against Deathstroke. So if you haven't read the whole Mike Grell library, Eddie Fires is this G-Man, you know, spook that comes in whenever his interests and Ollie's align. And so, you know, they work together because their interests align in this matter. And then always, invariably, every fucking time he screws Ollie over at the end in some way, even when Ollie knows and is looking for it, in some ways he can't expect or fathom, Fires has screwed him over again. Like, ha, we finally, no, we finally locked up the drug cartel. We finally locked up the boss and put him away. And I made sure that he got to a prison. I put him in a different prison than you wanted him to make sure he was in prison. And then you find out that fires and the American government's plan all along was to put someone else in charge of the cartel. So it didn't fucking matter where Ollie sent him to jail. Like every time there was some screw at the end, like, God damn it. But like that doesn't work on Deathstroke. Deathstroke will just shoot you in the head. That wasn't a fight that should have come to a draw. Deathstroke is literally a guy who, this is 98, so in five or six years, will take out the entire Justice League on his own, which is a story I have a huge number of problems with, with with that aspect, as well as a million other problems with identity crisis. But how, you know, as you said, this G-Man jerk is able to take out Deathstroke, who can take out the Justice League, is... Uh, again, I think that's Dixon's With a lit cigarette hanging from his mouth. You know, if it had been dead shot, still would have been wrong, but it would have been a little better than Deathstroke. Because dead shot would have also had the cigarette at the same time. This story is a big widescreen trifle. Except for some of the Connor and Bruce stuff. There's some really interesting interaction between Bruce and Connor both Bruce's sort of, you know, feeling out Connor's actual talents as they've only really encountered each other a couple of times, but also Connor trying to learn more about his father through Bruce. He asks him at one point, you know, about his dad because Connor knew his father for 10 issues before Oliver's, I'm not even gonna put in air quotes because he did die and was eventually resurrected before Oliver's death. So he didn't have a lot of time with him. And, and Connor himself says at one point or another, when he's talking to Tim about, you know, asking if Tim is Batman's biological son or not. And Connor just having this, this, this is a family and he can sort of get that vibe, even if they're not related by blood. And Connor is currently traveling with Eddie Fires and his martial arts sensei who are mentors, but they're not, family there isn't that same vibe it's so cute that connor after spending 10 issues like being his dad's sidekick um when his dad was green arrow sees robin and is like so are you batman's son batman is not my dad um i i do i do love i mean there's there's also a moment where um batman has to pick up connor's um bow to shoot an arrow to save Connor. And he makes the comment that Ollie taught him, like that he got Ollie to teach him how to how to shoot, which totally fits in in terms of like Bruce's absolute OCD of having to like learn absolutely everything from the best person to be able to try to do it as well as the best person and be the best at everything. 
absolutely makes sense that he would like in the least humble way make ollie teach him how to shoot a bow and arrow uh clark uh i'm gonna need you to teach me the heat vision and you're gonna have to get me to talk to lois i need to be a better investigative reporter but you don't really need to write bruce yes i do uh i, I need a pulitzer yeah i have one last note sure and my my last the last in my set of notes is that um Chuck Dixon does not understand how much mass an entire mountain's worth of snow and ice would be. Um, no, our they, dynamite. For, for those who did not read along, Batman and Green Arrow get caught in an avalanche, which, you know, as, a, as someone who has taught physical science, if you want to understand Newton's second law of motion here, just imagine, um, imagine like if a gallon jug of water fell on your head from a couple feet up, then imagine uh, a million gallon jugs of water falling from the top of a skyscraper and that's still not like the mass and the acceleration and the force from all of that water and snow coming down a mountain at 9.8 meters per second squared it's not the cold or the smothering that kills you it's force it's a lot of force it's thousands of tons of weight of water and ice hitting you at breakneck speeds I'm still struck by how he phrases the explosion. Several tons of dynamite sends several million tons of rock and ice into the air. Like several tons of dynamite? Several of tons dynamite. of dynamite. Like thousands of pounds of dynamite. I, 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 how, how much dynamite you think is going to blow up a mountain? Like, I don't know how much it would take, but several tons seems a bit excessive yeah especially if if all you want to do is trigger uh, trigger the avalanche you could do that with i don't know a couple of sticks my last note a very pretty cover on the detective comics issue oh absolutely my final note uh is that it was good to see bronze tiger that's a character that doesn't show up that much anymore and i i like bronze tiger uh you know the a former league of assassins member you know not even because he was brainwashed but a you know honorable martial artist who's trying to make up for past misdeeds that he did whether conscious of them or not it's a nice counterpoint to so many of the other martial artists who are either very honorable or very evil the the guy seeking redemption is different than your your bat family member or your flat out league of assassins you know the brotherhood of the monkey's fist never pops up again really and I kind of would like to see, you know, them show up as sort of an alternative to the League of Assassins. The sort of bargain basement League of Assassins. Like, you can't hire Raish, but you can get a monkey. If you would have given this story to Hickman, he would have had, like, a data page explaining all of the various different monkey rankings, and I would have enjoyed the shit out of it. Would have yes. loved a Hickman chart on monkey rankings. Yes. I think I think I need to learn some data page construction software just so I can look through rank do them and then you know come up with additional monkey rankings to to do because I need I need me a data page now. Again, gold has got to be at the bottom. Yep, with paper at the top, gold at the bottom. We we saw silver, we saw bamboo, we saw iron, we saw obsidian, we saw bronze, like bronze monkeys. Yes, they were bronze monkeys, the, the first ones that Bruce and Connor fight. 
I also liked um, last thing because this is in the aftershock era. This is post cataclysm, pre no man's land, and so they wind up in an upturned building, and it's just it's drawn so well um, and goes along. There's a great line of dialogue with Nightwing telling him like, "Just watch out, you know, like one wrong step and you fall down a hallway." That just kind of along with the visual was very striking. Like with really kind of made you stop and think of or for me, just kind of be impressed of the the reality of being in some of this wreckage and aftershock. Um, the, the combination there worked for me. And that building was the Davenport Center, which would have been named for Jay Devlin Davenport, who was one of Bruce's neighbors during that period, who was this, he was what Bruce Wayne pretends to be. He was this actually vapid CEO asshole who would show up every now and then and oh Bruce uh, you know show up at corporate events and be an ass and Bruce once had to protect from Deathstroke who has been hired to assassinate him and Gunhawk another of Dixon's pet gun-toting characters I think pasta monkey would be below gold monkey (laughs) is that the pasta before or after it's been cooked hmm We've got two branches. I think after cooking is is absolutely at the bottom. You can't fight with a wet noodle mat. Yeah, it's flailing. That, that is the flailing martial art. And with that, I think it's time to put Brotherhood of the Fist on the big board. This is fun. This is good, enjoyable story. It's, it's not as high as the last story, but... I mean, we're, we're not anywhere near the, you know, the dregs. I think we're somewhere probably in the 80s, 90s range. I was staring directly at Batman, Judge Dredd, Judgment on Gotham at 84. Yeah, that, that we're, we're, I think we are in that, that area. Is it better than that? I think it is probably better than the Misfits right below it, that Grant Tim Sale Chancer story. The conclusion of Judgment on Gotham is so strong. That is true. It's been a while since I've read Misfits. And so, yeah, like, I feel like you're definitely in the right spot. Yeah, you're right. And I I think this might go in between. I think this might be the new 85. All right. Works for me. And so now our final story of the night, The Arrow and the Bat. This is Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, numbers 127 to 131. The writer is Denny O'Neill, pencils by Sergio Cariello, inks by Matt Ryan, colors by Rick Taylor, letters by Willie Schubert, and edited by Bob Shrek and L.A. Williams. Cover dates are March, July of the year 2000. Set early in their careers, someone is out to kill Oliver Queen, and the killers are tied to a shady deal between Queen Industries and Wayne Enterprises. This, of course, draws the attention of Batman, and the two heroes wind up tracking the assassins to a foreign power and a cult of assassins. Oh boy. Uh, yep. This was a first read for me. Now, I I bought these a while ago. I found all five of them in a dollar bin, and I'm like, Daddy O'Neill writing Green Arrow again and Legends of the Dark Knight. Like, I'm fucking $5. I'm sold. And I never read them. Like, I'd been sitting on them. So they were one of the kind of options I had or were thinking about for the third issue here. My first big surprise and disappointment was when I cracked open the first issue that the beautiful cover art 
are nothing like the interior art. No, 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 no. I so I was expecting. I I had you know a long time of build up in my brain of what this would look like, and it did not look anything like that. No. And then pair that with, I guess I don't know somewhere through the first halfway through the first issue, and it's like something's incomplete, like something's missing, and like it just feels off. And I can't figure out what it is. It's like watching a movie on mute or something. And then I realize there are no sound effects lettering over the art throughout the entire thing. Like, cause I start going through and it's continuous. It's because there's in a scene where he's like throwing up or something and you can't really tell what's happening and there's no sound. And so I didn't know if it was really, or if he was, and it's very, once I noticed it, I couldn't stop noticing it. Like I couldn't see like on every action, every, every movement there were no sound effects lettering at all and i i don't know if that's happened in other books and i've never noticed it or but it definitely struck me in this one as it was like they just left one whole person in the team out like just weird it makes me want to go back and because cariello did a lot of bat stuff in this era and he's not an artist who i particularly have a lot of fondness for he did a couple of Batman Wildcat miniseries, a Catwoman Mild, Wildcat miniseries, and he did the latter third or so of the Azrael book from issues 69 to 100. But I remember digging the Catwoman Wildcat series back. I then. remember liking the book. I'm, I can't remember the art particularly well. I remember those Batman Wildcat, those Wildcat miniseries were fun. I just can't remember if the art, the art clearly yeah, didn't stick out in my head. Fiction. But yeah, no, the, the art here is, is, is not, those covers are not representative of the art. And I, I think, Will, you, you, you know, sent me a message in our Slack before that this is not Denny at his, his best. No, and just to quickly point out, it's Hugh Fleming on the covers and appears to still be working today. Yeah. I, I don't know. At least there's a Twitter account, presumably tweeting under his name. But yeah, the, the, I was struck by the covers too. I, I though did not go into the books uh, believing that uh, we'd get gorgeous, you know, painted art. Alas, not everything can be beautiful in this world. But yeah, we got some weird cultural tropes going on here. And I do not like the way that Bruce Wayne is written uh, in spots like he's written to be a yokel bruce wayne should have many 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 different opinions on foie gras uh but he should not not know what it is he should have like seven different restaurants to go to and say oh i like it here best this is bruce wayne as pure comic relief yeah that's weird i did not like it at all Ugh. We do get this dated. There's a scene where Alfred mentions that it's been two years since he started being Batman. So we get this dated in terms of where the timeline is. Denny was definitely trying to do that. And God, okay, so I went down a fucking rabbit hole on this one. Uh oh, uh oh. So General Joe. Okay, General Joe. So this is not familiar. And I have, I think I'm only missing four issues of the. Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, Green Hour. I have all the Denny O'Neill, Mike Grell ones. Like I know I've, I've 
I've read all the Green Arrow stuff. So I'm like, okay, look, okay, random character. Yeah, I, easily, I can't remember. So I'm going to go look it up. And I just start looking through the ones, can't find it anywhere. It's not in any of those. So I'm like, okay, well, Daniel O'Neill's written a lot of comics. I'm like, this is, he's got to be checking something here. This is clearly a character he's referencing. So I go more. I go back through the Green Arrow Showcase trade. Fucking nothing. I go through my 80th anniversary hardcover. Nothing. I go start looking up Denny's first Justice League was 66 from November of 68. Already had Batman and Green Arrow on the team. So I go back further. They cook Batman and Green Arrow co-star and Brave and the Bold 71 back in May of 1967. Has to be before that. Green Arrow first joins the Justice League in Justice League 4, May of 61. Batman's already in the fucking issue. It's not any of these Justice Leagues. So now I start going into more fun comics, leading comics, adventure comics. I'm trying to look through all of this fucking shit to find where Denny could be pulling this from. Finally, I find it. It is the 1998 series Legends of the DC Universe, where Denny O'Neill, in issues 7 through 9, wrote a story called Peacemakers, telling the first meeting of Hal and Ollie. I've never fucking heard of this thing. After reading this, I'm not super optimistic that it's going to be good. But now I got to go track down these three fucking things that they probably made 10,000 copies of. Like, who the hell knows? Uh, you can, I've found some of those Legends of the DC Universe in dollar bins. You'll, you, you can probably... No one's putting them. it in a top box. That's the only way I'm finding it. Oh, yeah. That's uh, not I've, getting sorted by L. That's going to be in bulk. There's some good stories in that Legends of the DC Universe. There's a fun Impulse Grodd issue... Uh, Wolfman and Butch Geist do a Wally West Raven issue. I'm trying to remember what there's some dark that side stuff. All sounds really, really deep up my alley. Yeah, there's a dark side, I think, two parter by Jamie Delano. I mean, there's Superman, there's a Barbara Gordon, a Batgirl two parter with these great Kevin Nolan covers. I can't remember who did the internals. And a two-part Aquaman Joker story. That's what? Yeah, I, I don't remember much about it. I just remember these really distinctive covers of Aquaman and the Joker. The series custody over the Joker fish. That's kind of what I'm trying to remember. Because I'm trying to remember all because it started out. It was Superman. It started out with Superman, and then it was Wonder Woman. Because this was kind of like. All right, you know, we're going to use the Legends of the Dark Knight model where it's different creators doing sort of weird prestige creative teams. Yeah, okay, so yeah, Danny O'Neill and oh, early Greg Land on that. That's, green... that's not giving me any optimism at all. This is night... not. In all fairness, this is like Nightwing Birds of Prey era Greg Land. So we're not quite in the, the, totally I still have nightmares of some of those panels from uncanny x-men greg land like there's that's that's not good stuff ah the batgirl two-parter it's kelly puckett writing it and terry dodson on Ooh. art so in 90, 1998 terry dodson that's some some good stuff it's gonna be pretty yeah i'm trying to remember the series ran it ran for 40 issues so there was i remember there was a series of green arrow not green arrow green lanterns it was like three connected arcs one was like an abensor arc oh wow there was a one one-off uh with jimmy olsen from uh Evanier and steve rude from like the the kirby era so that's 
yes, folks, we're, we, you know, as our tangents go, this one is actually far more germane than some of our tangents. I, I gotta go five knees. Yeah. I mean, I, like a trade now. Yeah. I'm just, I'm kind of going through here's the, the impulse issue, which written by nobody who I am familiar with, but I thought it was, yeah, yeah. Grodd, uh, it, Bart, and a bunch of gorillas uh, lead into the JL Ape annual event. Yeah, Abin Sur in like the Old West story. That's something else. Oh, wow. Ledron, Jose Ledron did uh, a Superman issue in there. I might wind up cutting a lot of this, but I'm now going through here and we're. This might be more bonus content. Jamie Delano and Steve Pugh doing Dark Side. I mean, this is more fun than talking about some of the stuff that happened in this five-parter. Oh my God, yes. Okay, the yes, the uh, Aquaman Joker is Steve Englehart. Ooh. Englehart written uh, Trevor Von Eden on art. Oh, yep. Yeah, there, it, it does have to do with the laughing fish. <laughs> well, of course. It picks up right after the end of The Laughing Fish. That's kind of great. It would be fun to see Joker like dragged underwater to have to answer for the Joker fish and some kind of like, you know, helmet, little Joker scuba suit. Uh, an early Hal Jordan as the Spectre story from Jam DeMatteis and Mike Zuli. Right, because we're after final night here. Yeah. They did a couple of uh, their 80-page giants for the series, too. But back to th- this this five-parter. I have the Wonder Woman one somewhere, actually, looking at them now. But yeah, this is, yeah, <laughs> this is not good. This, this is, by the way, when you think, the first arc of Legends of the Dark Knight out of No Man's Land. No Man's Land ends the issue before this. And you'd think, oh boy, it's Denny O'Neill. The legendary Green Arrow writer, the legendary Batman writer on Legends of the Dark Knight doing an early meeting of the two. It, it should be great. And it's not. It reads like an artifact of the 70s from a lesser writer. Because the the bar the asian country faux asian country here is the the one thing i do love about that is that because bruce mispronounces it as the bar instead of zabar and there's a letter in arabic which is um mal and depending on which asian countries or um how they pronounce it or where the transliteration transliterators come from, it will get spelled or pronounced with either a DH like the, or a Z because we don't have a sound for it in English for law. And so the fact that they kind of had this little back and forth in it, like the DH or the Z like was amusing to me because like, there's a little tell because that is a common transliteration of Arabic and Urdu that you see for that sound. So it would be Zahar? Ball. Like you're saying the, but with your tongue up and like where your teeth meet the roof of your mouth. Huh. Fascinating. The stuff there is 
real uncomfortable. The broken English that the sort of prime minister grand vizier figure speaks with, I would have actually been fine with that if when he wasn't in front of Vicky Vale, his English was perfect. Because you find out he was arrested in the States. He spent years in America. If he was, you know, putting on that bad English to, you know, look like a rube, basically, that would have made perfect sense. But no, he just speaks poor English, having been arrested in Chicago as a grifter. That doesn't make any sense. No, he was not. The only of the kind of antagonist characters that I liked was, um, I thought LeBron was interesting, but underutilized. Like, I thought there was kind of like an interesting teaser set up there, and then we got very little, and obviously never used, I'm, I'm fairly confident never used again. But like So that many rules, that guy. Could have, <laughs> but could have been something. Like, there was at least a little bit of like interest or potential in that character, but no, between the, the fake Dalai Lama stuff, like Ooh, the yeah. most interesting things were like the surround, like not actually what was on the page, but like being, it'll be like, Oh, this is like the Arabic thing or like just being excited that Kim Basinger was in this. <laughs> yeah. And boy, when you get that bit, when there's the fight and our, leader of our martial arts called there's only seven men in the world who can defend against this move it's like yeah he's gonna fight batman and batman is obviously gonna be one of the guys who can defend against this move right and he gets the end of part of the story it's like yep there it is saw that one coming a mile away look bud all you gotta do is clench your butthole that's it <laughs> this is like reading some of those x-men legend stories or things that marvel does that feel like they feel like the comic book writer retirement fund where like, we're going to like, you just write an old story and we won't say it'll be like non-canon off to the side, maybe canon. And like, we just want to get you a paycheck that Chris Claremont or Roy Thomas or, or, or people do in there, you know, Peter Allen David is, you know, he's on that senior tour now. Um, he's made a career out of it at this point. And this is his career. They just keep giving him five issue miniseries of characters he wrote 30 years ago just to get the man a paycheck. This has definitely some of that feel. Batman's first computer was cute. That was legitimately <laughs> funny. Yes. The, the Lucius Fox just finished com computerizing all the Wayne records. It's like, wow. He's got one little computer on like a TV table in the Batcave. No Cray mainframes here. It's just a weird frigging story. And I don't know. There were interesting ideas in this story that there's stuff going on under Bruce's nose in Wayne Enterprises that he isn't paying attention to. There's potential there. That Oliver, after leaving, you know, selling off Queen Enterprises or Queen Industries because of the shady dealings there, that it's coming back to bite him in the ass. It's like that, there's, there's material there. But all of that is sort of secondary to this thing. I like the, the concept of Oliver getting the yips. I think there was a lot of potential for that, but and Oliver having a panic attack. Again, there's potential, but there's so much going on here. And Vicky Vale just sort of be like, yeah, we're going to use Vicky Vale to have written this story. So Bruce can have that weird scene in the restaurant with her. Well, I'd just rather have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That was so weird. 
in his meeting with Oliver in in his office where Bruce just is vapid. He, he's not even not interested in business. Like this guy doesn't seem like he could put his own pants on. He's so incompetent. Uh, Bruce Wayne was looking for information on the polo ponies. So he wandered into the library. <laughs> and yet somehow wandered into geography. That's like Bruce Wayne needed to take a shit, so he went to the grocery store. <laughs> doesn't make any sense. And I mean, Denny wrote so much Bruce and Ollie. Like, it's kind of the same thing with Ollie here. Ollie is much angrier than he's ever been in, in any of the other Denny O'Neill stuff, which I guess, you know, you could say like, well, he's younger. This is supposed to be before all of that. I don't know. It, the characters just felt off. The, the one thing I did like, and part of it was kind of after, you know, reading 559 again, where we talk about, you know, Ollie kind of pretending to be or trying to be what Bruce really is and things like that. The fact that, you know, we're seeing, okay, Bruce pretends to be the playboy and everywhere Ollie goes, he like actually is the playboy. Like, oh, this my flight. What are you doing? Beautiful. Like, hey, like can't help himself actually Try so hard to be what Bruce is here. Meanwhile, Bruce has to fake to be like the playboy that Ollie just, that is his natural effortless. That worked, but it was an odd juxtaposition on the very angry Ollie we got the rest of the time. There's also one just fun little throwaway line when Batman first runs into Ollie, Ollie uh, you know, they, they, they have this, run in and Bruce like, you know, meet me after I need to do research. Uh, corner of Adams and Forth. It's like, okay, yep, Neil Adams reference. And that, you know, oh, so sweet. because Often those, so much of Gotham is named after creators. It can often be frustrating and sort of like, at this point, often I hear like, wah, wah, whenever they do that, because it's so much. But in this particular case, with it being Denny O'Neill writing it and it being Batman and Green Arrow, it's like, okay, that one works with this story because it is very much tied to this story versus uh, Tom King's Killing Time where there Everything. Are, yeah, there's at least six of those in each issue. And it's like, oh my God, throw me more out of this story with your winks and nods. I don't know what Denny O'Neill was trying to do with this story because, yeah, you know, the year 2000 was a less enlightened time than it is now, but this feels even off for the year 2000 with the level of stereotypes, especially from a writer who knows better. Yeah. And I, I mean, I love the Denny O'Neill era in terms of him as the editor, not, not to say anything bad about him as a writer. Like there's the Denny O'Neill writing era, but Denny O'Neill was the editor and, you know, the head of the Bat titles, you know, while I was growing up. And there was this really cohesive kind of world there, which, I mean, was probably easier when Dixon was writing seven fucking books a month for him. Um, I'm sure that that helped a little. But, you know, like all of the characters kind of inter it, it made it feel like it was part of a bigger world. And, and there were a lot of great connections I mean, Batman works so many different ways. So often you get him just as, you know, the lone dark knight. Um, and, you know, but I love the big Bat family. I love when we get, Tanya tried to bring back in his detective comics, you know, we see people when they go there and they bring like big Bat family, it's, 
Well, the last Chip Darsky issue gave us fucking everybody. Like that's I love that. And so, you know, that's that's Denny O'Neill era for me. Um, but this this did not feel like even any of that. This this was a whole separate thing. This is right after Denny stepped down because he stopped as the family editor right after No Man's Land. He shepherded them through No Man's Land and then right there. Yeah. I mean, he I think he's listed as editor on like the next couple issues just because they would have been sort of when he was in there. But Bob Shrek takes over as the group editor after No Man's Land. So this was sort of like, OK, I'm done as you know editor. So let me go in and do some more writing. And it's he must do another like Legends of the Dark Knight arc before the series is done, but not many he doesn't do a ton of writing after this he's he's he feels like he was semi-retired by this point when did he stop writing Azrael? oh right Azrael would have been the yes that would have been the end so he was still on Azrael for for quite a while Azrael ran to issue 100 so yeah he had another like three years of Azrael. i will never be able to explain how there are so many issues of Azrael and Steel. And I look, I love Denny O'Neill and I love Louise Simonson, but I feel like those books wouldn't make it past a second trade today. And oh no, how there are so many of them. Yeah, Azrael ran to issue 100 Woo! and with like a couple annuals in there. And I'm pretty sure Denny wrote every one. So it's, it's a, oh, wow. The next Legend of the Dark Knight arc, by the way, after this is Archie Goodwin's last story that he had written before his passing with, uh, I think, Marshall Rogers on art on that one. That's one we'll have to get to someday. Well, obviously, because we're going to get to everything. Everything. Yeah, I mean, we've done a lot of talking around this story because it's not good and it is problematic in a whole bunch of places. Does anybody have anything else they want to throw in there? Google is no good at telling me uh, when Denny O'Neill's last Batman story would have been. Curse you, Google. With that said, I think it's time with the arrow and the bat on the big board. Oh, so here's the story, Josh, that will fit in with that echelon of some of the stuff we've done before. Right, then let's start with one of mine that you hated before. How is this compared to Superman Grounded? The one issue of Superman Grounded with Batman. Oh, boy. Um, that's what is that, 710? Yeah. That's a 142. Um, I think it's better than that. I mean, I didn't actively hate this story while I was reading it. It's probably... It's probably you know, I'm the than- only one of the three of us that likes that issue, so... I think that issue is just trying to cram 10 pounds of story in a five pound bag. That was my problem with that one. Damning with faint praise. I would probably reread this before I reread war games. Uh, We don't have enough time in the year to (laughs) reread war games. True. Actually right above war games is days of rage which is the Huntress 17 to 19, which falls into a similar trap of being problematic because of its timing. That is 
Huntress and Batman and inner city quote unquote gangs and drugs and a lot of white liberal guilt. So it is problematic because of where it exists. And this is problematic in a similar way. I think this is better, but uh, I think we're looking at the right area. Yeah, two above that is Superman's Secret Kingdom, that world's finest story where uh, Superman becomes king of a lost Incan tribe. Well, that has some yeah. similar good fucking godness to it. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, again, you can forgive that a little more because that was in the 50s. You can only go so much higher, though. It's not as good as oh, from yeah. beginning to beginning or Robin the Boy Wonder. No, 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 no. I'd put this above in Darkest Night. Okay, but, but yeah, but not above Beware of Poison Ivy. So I think that makes it 134. Sounds good. Okay. It would have been ranked higher if we hadn't read it and just judged it based on the covers. Yeah. Uh, yes. Because those colors were great. We, we And we didn't even talk about the weird-ass Robin Hood-esque archer guy who's in here. The way! The fu- not Merlin either. Like, right. the random... <laughs> greatest archer in the world with the crazy eyes and the weird body and the just the duh i don't yeah. i don't even know man i don't even know that was a choice <laughs> was it ever uh so josh thank you as ever for coming on the show i want to let people know where they can find you online you can find me um, on Twitter at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L. And you can catch me on X's for Podcast, which can be procured at all of your finest podcast vendors, uh, where me and a group of uh, fellow queer poly comic nerds talk about all the latest X-Men books and Marvel books and uh, what's going on over on Krakoa. Uh, we have a, a weekly run where... You get a, a different mix of us each week talking about what's coming out. And it's it's a lot of fun. Um, and if you haven't checked it out yet, check it out. That's X is for podcast. Thanks, Josh. We Everyone should go and check out that show. So that's it for this week. Next week, it's celebration time as we Woo! are going to be celebrating the 30th anniversary of both Batman, the animated series, and the biggest character to be introduced to the Bat Canon in that from that series and in the last 30 years, Harley Quinn. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names. June, come on. Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam Hopper, Christian Smith, and John Wickham for their support. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music Audible, and on comicsxf.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more, more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLast1013. And I am at Will Nevin. And before I get out of here, let me remind you freeloaders, sign up, support the show, uh, because I want uh, some kind of justification for the big, big dollars I just threw down for that 4K Star Trek set. 
But until then, until my next pitch for you fucking freeloaders to sign up and get on board, I'm out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>